Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Wow, are you in for a treat. On this episode, we are welcoming Heather McGee back to the show. Heather is, she's everything. She's a best-selling author, a speaker, and the board chair for Color of Change, which is the country's largest online racial justice organization. And she's also the host of the podcast, The Some of Us, which launched in July. California Reparations Task Force is making history with a major decision on who will receive compensation. The first of its kind task force was put together by Governor Gavin Newsom back in 2020. Now, after hours of testimony and debate, the group has voted five to four that reparations should be paid. Solidarity dividend, I think, is the key to the way forward. To understanding that the old zero-sum lie was created to justify an economic model and a societal model that we have long since tried to distance ourselves from. Our story is not just our story, it's thousands and thousands of people's stories. And they need to keep telling them. And, um, you know, I, I think it, it does, it can change minds. The movement for Black Lives, the largest social movement in American history, has made us realize that racism is still with us that it is written in our laws and our policies, and that it's going to take a multiracial coalition to uproot it, root and branch. My name is Heather McGee. I'm the author of the new book, The Sum of Us. And I am working to convince everyone that racism, you know what, it's bad for us all. Sorry, not sorry. Heather, thank you so much. Welcome back to Sorry Not Sorry. I guess for my listeners who might be new, would you just start off by telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Thanks for having me back on. We were last in conversation right after I published my book, which is called The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. And that book was really the result of a journey that I took over three years as a sort of frustrated economic policy wonk who'd been working for two decades to try to advance solutions to inequality, make everyone's lives a little bit better. And I felt like I was frustrated because there were these sort of invisible headwinds. And I was wondering why it is that we can't seem to have nice things like universal childcare and paid family leave and a job that pays enough to keep a family's lights on and a well-funded school in every neighborhood. And that journey led me to realize that in ways that we haven't really tallied, racism in our politics and our policymaking 
is so distorting to our ability to find common solutions to our common problems and that it ultimately has a cost for everyone. So that was the book full of economic data and stories from people around the country, ultimately ended up as a hopeful book, but it finally handed it out into my publisher, November, 2020. It came out in January, 2021. And so many things have happened since January, 2021, as we know, so many, the well-funded backlash against racial justice and our children's freedom to learn, the capture of the courts, the assault on our very freedoms. <sighs> it just, it just felt like I needed to get back out on the road and remember that this country is great and worth fighting for and people are coming together all the time against the odds. And so I decided to do that. I hit the road again. I spent the last 6 months traveling across the country and recording a podcast. It's really an audio documentary that is nine new stories of people coming together across race to win things that they simply couldn't win on their own. Your podcast is called The Sum of Us. One of your books is called The Sum of Us. Let's unpack what that means. Yeah, so this idea of the sum of us just was really resonant to me. First, because one of the first insights that I gleaned on my journey to write the book was that something that is really holding us back as a country is a lie, and it's the lie of the zero sum. Zero sum refers to the kind of game where one team gets one point and that makes the other team lose a point, right? Not like, oh, you know, team A is gaining points. Fine. We're staying in place or we're going to get our own points. No, it was like every time team A gets a point, team B loses the point. And that idea that there's sort of like a fixed number of well-being points is a mental framework that is really predominant in the U.S., according to the research. The idea that we're in a competition for well-being and if one group gets a bigger slice of the pie, then the other groups get smaller slices of the pie. And in the U.S., it's a racialized idea. It's racialized because the predominant worldview says it's racial and ethnic groups that are competing. And it's racialized because, interestingly, the research shows that white Americans are far more likely to view the world through that zero-sum prism to be really worried about what other groups seem to be getting and feeling like it's not just fine for them, it's actually detrimental to themselves if basically the progress for people of color has to come at white folks' expense. I thought it was so interesting because people of color, according to the data, don't tend to see our progress as coming as white folks' expense, but the reverse isn't true. So just this problem that was identified, that I identified on my journey, that the zero sum is really holding us back from seeing what's in our collective self-interest. And it's costing our economy trillions of dollars. The black-white economic divide cost the US GDP 16 trillion over the last 20 years. And just simply that, what about the opposite way of looking at the world? What about the idea that we can be so much greater when the sum of our parts is bigger, when we come together, this extraordinary country where there's someone here with a tie to every community on the globe? What if we really were united and could really cheer for each other and could really face up to what has held us back and held us apart and say, that's not serving us anymore and lean on each other and grow from one another and not be so divided and not have these resentments across lines of race. Yeah. As you're speaking, what I'm thinking about is how social media plays into all of that. How would it be possible to do that in this world where 
We are divided when we're at home, even holding our handheld devices. It's a really good question. Social media is not a neutral thing. No, it absolutely distorts the way we behave. It is behaviorally engineered to change the way we behave. It incentivizes, because it's more profitable, outrageous behavior, us versus them thinking, negative posts, outrage. These companies have figured out that they can sell hate for profit. And so that's why, if you look through the looking glass of social media, our country's insane. Insane, right? There's some cute cat videos and babies kissing their dads and stuff like that. There's some benign things on the internet. But when we're talking about each other, it's crazy. And that's not an accident. And I think one of the things that I've discovered throughout my journey to write the book and the podcast is that ultimately, everything we believe comes from a story we've been told. There's a Native American proverb that says, the one who tells the story rules the world. Stories have the potential to be incredibly powerful. They're able to change how we relate to each other, to change prejudice. So the potential for stories to persuade is staggering. And so I'm asking all the time, Who's selling us this story? How are they profiting from the sale of this story, right? Even the zero sum that I was talking about, there's not something biological, some relationship between melanin count in your skin and your likelihood to see the world through a zero sum prism, right? It's not like white people are more likely to see the world through the zero sum prism for some natural reason. No, it's that somebody who's profiting from that economically, politically, is selling white audiences the story that they should be afraid of demographic change, that they should resent the progress or even the presence of their neighbor if they're from a different race or background. And as we know, that leads to real political benefits for the politicians and the paid bullies in the corporate media who are selling those ideas. And it leads to economic benefits because it makes white voters far more likely to choose a party that's marketing to them culturally saying you're one of the real Americans, not those people. And yet, what does it give them economically? Tax cuts for the wealthy, keeping the minimum wage low, not investing in the public goods that we need to keep our country thriving, being opposed to child care and health care and paid family leave and all these nice things that, you know what, white families need too. I want to talk about the idea of the solidarity dividend. You talk about it a lot, and I think it's just dead on. So let's dig into that. So I was doing these trips, right? I went from California to Mississippi to Maine and back again. And the sort of mission that I gave myself was to talk to as many people as possible, learn about how they're seeing each other and what they're sort of been willing to do in order to make their lives better or their communities' lives better. And what I discovered was that it's not being reported very much in the mainstream media. It doesn't get a lot of clicks. But in every corner of this country, people are coming together and they're coming together across lines of race 
And they are in so doing, gaining the collective power it takes to make change. That's the only thing that has ever made change in society is people coming together in collective action. And in a diverse and as diverse a society as we have now, more often than not, that's got to be across lines of race so that we're not pit against one another by powerful interests that want to keep things exactly the way they are. And so I decided there needed to be a name for this phenomenon I was seeing in so many places where a community was divided and everyone was stuck in their own neighborhoods and their own fears and divisions. And then something happened that brought people together and they were able to take on a powerful interest and win real things like cleaner air and higher wages and better funded schools. And so I decided to call that phenomenon the solidarity dividend. And it's literally like a gain that you can unlock, but only by coming together across lines of race. And Alyssa, like you, so many people who read the book were like, ooh, that, what is that about? I want more of that. Literally, I have goosebumps on my arms just talking about it. It's shocking that we're not striving for that. Yeah, exactly. So I decided after I published the book and it was like Solidarity Dividend was the hopeful ending of a bunch of the chapters. The last chapter of the book is called Solidarity Dividend. And honestly, as the year 2021, like ground to just like a very dispiriting, despairing halt, I said, I'm losing that sense of hope that I had when I finished the book. I don't know if after 2020, right, the racial justice uprising, so much mass consciousness raising. It felt like we're going to really take a quantum leap forward. And then this backlash and these attacks and this like retrenchment and then the right wing takeover at our state legislatures and our bodies and our courts and the all of it. And I just felt like, God, is there still reason for hope? And so I hit the road again and I said, you know what? Let me just tell solidarity dividend stories. Let me just find more examples and dig into what does it take? What happens when the white dairy farmer gets a knock on his door and it's a group of Somali Bantu farmers who want to buy his land and keep it in farming when we're losing tens of thousands of acres of farmland every day in the U.S. to speculation and development? What does that white farmer say? What kind of fears does he have to get over? What sort of hesitation? What does the Somali community need to do in order to overcome all the barriers and hurdles, right? So those are the stories that the podcast is telling, and each one is hopeful. And we need that. You know, the last time you were on the show, as you mentioned, we were at this critical pivot point. Biden won and had just taken office. The COVID vaccine was just starting to roll out, but was not available to everyone. What has changed in our solidarity since then? Are we in a better place? Are we in a worse place? Because I remember saying to you, if we can't come out of this on the other side better than we went into it, then for what? Are we in a better place? Are we in a worse place? What do you think? Okay. I thought a lot about this. I'll tell you how we're not in a better place, and then I'll tell you how we are. (laughs) All right. So... As opposed to when we talked, you know, January 6th has both happened and deepened into a completely disconnected conspiracy theory movement that is not only in people's imaginations and social media feeds, but is now being elected into office. This man's name is Jeremy Bertino. He's pleaded guilty to two counts, including 
one count of seditious conspiracy, admitting to conspiring with six other Proud Boys, including the leader of that group, Enrique Terrio, uh, to, in, in an effort to try to uh, thwart uh, the U.S. government and its lawful transfer of power uh, after the 2020 presidential election. He also pleaded guilty to uh, gun charges here. Big liars are being elected into office to be in control of certifying the next election. We have more and more Republicans and Republican-leaning independents thinking that political violence is okay. That's bad. That is worse. We have the fact that Roe v. Wade was overturned by essentially a stolen Supreme Court. And even though 60% of the country supports legal safe abortion, one in four women has had an abortion, we are now seeing dozens of states limit reproductive freedom in a way that is changing lives and costing lives is going to impact the next generation. It's devastating. But what I do think is better is that as much as the right wing would love to censor our conversations, to ban books, to attack our children's freedom to learn, to intimidate by calling it woke, people fighting for justice and plain equality. It's hard to go back to sleep once you've had your consciousness awakened. It's hard to unlearn what many millions of Americans of all races learned about our own racial history that had been kept from us in the year 2020. And as I travel across the country, yes, there are not as many Black Lives Matter signs in the windows. Although I was in a random place in upstate New York just the other day, and there was a group of elderly white people on the corner with cardboard signs saying like honk for anti-racism. And it was just great. This was last week, right? There's not as much of that. And yet every single person that I talked to in the journey for this podcast was changed because of something that happened in the summer of 2020. Whether it was like a white mountain biker from Santa Cruz, California, who likes to go mountain biking in the mountains around Lake Tahoe, who said that he's an outdoors guy. And when he heard about Ahmad Aubrey's death, like something broke in him. And he just could easily, as so many runners could, put himself in that position and in his shoes. And he founded a group called Riders Against Racism. And he ended up getting deep into the community around Lake Tahoe and finding out that there is a siren, like an air raid siren that sings every single day that was originally put up to warn Indigenous people to leave town because it was a sundown town of which there were some all over the country in our history in the 19th and 20th centuries telling people who were not white, you can come here to work during the day, but you better leave by the time the sun sets. And that siren still sounds today. So he ended up partnering with a Washoe tribal educator in order to try to get that siren shut off. That would not have happened if it were not for the summer of 2020. You can't change that person back into someone who just thought, I'm a colorblind guy living in a colorblind world. And there are so many stories that it feels like, in some ways, the reason why the right wing is trying so desperately to attack what we learn and say and our children's freedom to learn is that they know that consciousness is so powerful, even maybe more powerful and enduring than a legislative change.
And then the last thing I'll say quickly about what's better is I spent most of my career under an sort of economic worldview that was bipartisan that said the government can't do much to help people and shouldn't. And instead, in the past 18 months, we've had four once in a generation huge pieces of legislation from the rescue plan to the infrastructure plan to this thing called the CHIPS Act, which is like industrial policy, which is the government saying, you know what, we need to do a certain thing to make our economy grow and not just leave it to business to figure out whether they want to do that because no one business is going to be able to do it on their own. Like we're going to invest in what we know we need, which is new technology and semiconductors. And then of course, most recently, what they're calling the Inflation Reduction Act, which is the biggest climate investment in history. That's all huge and not everybody's feeling every part of it yet, but it's a fundamental sea change. And that's a really big deal and thing we are now and going to be the better for it for a long time. Yeah, and it's hard to spin those kinds of policies because they just wind up sounding ridiculous. So I think the more successes we have like that, people will feel the impact of that. Yeah, absolutely. So we're coming into the midterm elections here. What do you see happening in these races from a solidarity and equity standpoint? Are you concerned? Are you, again, hopeful? So this is what I see in the wake of the Dobbs decision, the decision by these right-wing religious zealots on the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade, particularly women and younger women flocked to register to vote in huge numbers. And it has already meant that in each successive special election or ballot initiative that has happened since the Dobbs decision, where it's clear that because of the partisan cut or in the case of Kansas, because there was actually an initiative on the ballot about abortion and amending the Constitution to ban it, women and our allies are winning and are saying, hold on one second. Mrs. Seal, what is your read on tonight's results? I want to remind everybody that we are talking about the red state of Kansas, and yet voters turned out in record numbers on this specific question post-Dobbs. How, how are you reading the results so far tonight, Cecile? Well, it's an extraordinary victory, really. really. It's amazing. This is, and of course, the Republicans tried to rig this election you know, run it on a primary uh, date where they didn't expect anyone to be voting. And instead, we've seen people waiting in line for hours to vote. This is, uh, I think this shows exactly what we learned in the many years I was at Planned Parenthood, that if you put on the ballot the issue of whether or not people who are pregnant should make their decisions about their pregnancies for politicians, overwhelmingly people will vote in favor of people who are pregnant. And why do I think this is an issue of solidarity? I really wanted in the podcast to tell of the some of us story about abortion. And abortion is something that I think is just terribly misunderstood in this country. It's one of the things we've been lied to so much about where actually the religious community, compassionate religious people helped to win abortion rights. The Roe v. Wade decision was actually the case Jane Rowe went to a women's group meeting at a Unitarian church in Dallas, Texas, and that sparked that case. So many of the abortions that had before Roe only happened because somebody in need 
called their clergy member, their minister, their priest, and they were part of an underground network called the Clergy Consultation Services, which got people abortions before Roe. And that network is happening again. I tell this story in an episode of the podcast that's about Albuquerque to Dallas, because before Roe and after Roe, these are little stories of people standing in solidarity with women and people who can get pregnant at their time of need and saying, I've got your back. And it's often because money is the number one reason why people seek abortions because they already have children and they can't afford any more because our safety net is crap. And having a child makes you much more likely to fall into poverty if you're not already there. It's often Solidarity across class and race. These limitations on abortion disproportionately impact working class women of all races, Black, Brown, Indigenous women, immigrant women, and people. And if we really think about what we want for our country, saying, I'm not going to let you fall into misery and fall deeper into struggle because of some group of mostly white men who have an idea about what women's role in society should be. And so there are so many stories of solidarity to tell. And red voters in Kansas overwhelmingly rejecting a constitutional amendment? That was amazing. It was a show of solidarity, right? It was people being like, for me, for mine, for my neighbor, for my daughter, we're just not going to do this. We're not going to go back. And I think that energy is going to shape the midterms in a way that the prognosticators and the commentators are still not prepared for. And I also think that it's good that there are so many solidarity dividends, Alyssa, for Democrats to run on, whether it's like universal broadband or all the other things that are coming from all of these great bills that have been passed. The fight for reproductive rights and the loss of being able to have bodily autonomy is so much about systemic racism because people are able to continue the status quo when a woman who can't afford to have another child has another child. It is so important that people understand this connection. Yeah. It's on a fundamental basis, the idea of men using the power of the state to control whether mostly women can have children or whether they are forced to bear children against their will. It belongs to the state. It belongs to these gentlemen right here who are state legislators representing you. That is the best way, I think, as a man, that women get the best voice at the state level, not at the federal level. And it's really Senator Hassan that doesn't understand this, right? And she needs to get on board with the Supreme Court decision. It goes back to slavery, where we had laws that protected white man's right to rape a, an enslaved woman. And there's that quote that the enslaved woman is worth more than the enslaved man because of breeding. Of course, right? So not only is it like his sexual right to do that, but in fact, it creates out of his children, 
more enslaved people, which is like creating more free labor, right? It's insane. And yet we would not have had the system of slavery that we had were it not for this, right? So it really is such a huge part of the lineage of this. And as I talk about in the episode of the Some of Us podcast that goes into the sort of hidden history of the abortion movement in this country, some 60,000 women were forcibly sterilized by governments in the U.S. in the 20th century. They estimate that one in four indigenous women was sterilized over the 20th century as part of a program of trying to breed out genocide, trying to breed out who you couldn't control and who was no longer useful to you. And so there's just, it's really connected. And then it's simply connected because frankly, I'm just going to be blunt. The majority of white voters support the Republican Party. And we would not be here if it were not for a consciousness among the majority of white voters that says, we want what the Republican Party is marketing to us culturally. And that's, we want that more than we want reproductive freedom, than we want the wealthy to pay taxes, than we want all of these other things. And so we would not be in this mess if it were not for a lack of solidarity among so many white voters with women of all races, particularly women of color, with their brown and black and indigenous neighbors. And now we're seeing all these states intentionally suppressing the ability of so many people of color to vote right now, like out in the open, right out in the open. And this might seem like a really obvious question and simple question, but what is the cost of that to us as a nation? Democracy is not promised. It's a really radical experiment. We are the oldest representative democracy. Our fate as such is not guaranteed. I think we all take a lot of pride out of being a democracy. It's sort of like, yeah, we can self-govern. Our rulers have to ask us for permission to rule, right? It's not like the UK may the queen rest in peace, but we do not have a monarchy. That means it's not some family's divine right, people who have to ask our permission. Like that gives us a little bit of a self-esteem that I, I think that we don't talk about it, we don't think about it, but we're proud of that. And so the more that we let a party chip away at the very functioning of democracy, whether it's the rule of law and the idea that no, a former president shouldn't take secrets away so that I think I'm just, this is not official. This is not based on any inside information, but like, why would Trump do anything to make money, right? This is about having tried to, or successfully selling those secrets, right? Let's be very clear. Follow the money, people. Follow the money. We've been saying it since day one. We've been saying it. We've literally, those of us who fought tooth and nail against Donald Trump have been saying this exact scenario of what's happening right now. And so the people who are defending him are saying that our national security doesn't matter, that the rule of law doesn't matter. Good evening tonight. The evolving reactions to the reporting by The Washington Post published last night around this time, some 24 hours ago. The Post reported that FBI agents recovered a document from Mar-a-Lago describing a foreign country's nuclear capabilities. And CNN has yet to confirm the Post reporting. That said, when reached by The Washington Post for comment, an attorney for the former president did not deny the substance of it. Instead, he said something that we've now started hearing a lot from defenders of the former president in the last 24 hours, deflecting on the facts, focusing instead on the leaks. For example, here's Senator Marco Rubio, who serves on the Senate Intelligence Committee this past Sunday, explaining away the FBI recovering highly classified documents at Mar-a-Lago as a storage argument. 
This is really at its core a storage argument that they're making, right? They're arguing there are documents there. They don't deny that he should have access to those documents. I don't think a fight over storage of documents is worthy of what they've done. And so all of this, the cost to us of allowing anybody's vote to be tossed aside, whether it's through a voter purge, right, where state secretaries of state go through lists and say, you haven't voted in the last two, so you didn't vote for that special election or that midterm. And so you must not be a registered voter anymore. Getting rid of same day registration, just making it harder and harder. It is targeted, obviously, at people of color because it's a partisan thing. It is sold to right-wing voters as this is keeping your birthright country safe from people who are not real Americans. But ultimately, nobody's vote is secure. And what happens when voter turnout goes down? It means that rich people get to sit in back rooms and have unfettered influence over our legislators. And it means that they can just run somebody who will do their bidding because voters are locked out of the process. And that's bad for everyone. And we mentioned education a couple of times. A new national survey shows that voters, including both parents of school-age children and non-parents, to be acutely concerned about a wide range of school challenges, including lack of funding, teacher shortages, and insufficient mental health support. These findings demonstrate that attempts to drive a wedge between parents and educators by right-wing campaigns and sensationalized cable news stories have failed. Teachers remain more trusted than politicians when it comes to curriculum. This is from uh, GBAO poll results. If we're not starting at education, are we ever going to see these changes in our lifetime? One of the most dispiriting things that's been happening in the past year and a half for me since the Some of Us, the book came out, has been these attacks on public goods, on public schools, on public servants, on the people that Mr. Rogers called the helpers, look for the helpers, on our children's freedom to learn. It's so cynical. It's marketing a zero-sum idea that says it's either like Black history or white history, and your white children should be terrified of learning this Black history. You know, and of course, it's not true, right? It's all of our history. And if we're talking about the history of racism, that's white history. You know what I mean? Like, we didn't enslave ourselves, you know? And also, I truly believe it's not a threat to white children. I had an op-ed in the New York Times out last week called um, School is for Making Citizens where I referenced this research that shows that actually teaching children critical, full accounts of our nation's history helps them be more empathetic and do better critical thinking. Duh. But it's really cynical because what they're trying to do is to create a culture war to scare white parents in the suburbs, who white parents in the suburbs went dramatically towards Biden and the Democrats in 2020. And they're trying first to have a short-term political win, which has not been working as that poll shows. It's certainly distracting. And then they're trying the sort of deeper strategic thing that's going on, Alyssa, is that they're trying to drain the pool again, right? They're trying to make white parents turn away from public schools at a time when public schools are very weak, where the budget cuts, the teacher burnout, all of the stresses of the pandemic the learning loss. And it's saying to white parents, 
turn away from these schools. And then the tax dollars that disproportionately flow to white parents because of racist policies in the past will then drain the pool of public resources. And it'll only be brown and black children left in public schools. And then we can privatize them, profit from them. And so it's really cynical. It's not surprising that it's like Koch brothers type of network who have always hated integration, have always hated public schools and government who are funding these crazy campaigns to ban books. Which reminds me of another thing that I learned recently, that the Republican Party was not, quote unquote, pro-life, did not have a strong opinion on abortion until they lost the battle of keeping schools segregated. That's right. There's this wonderful book called The Lies That Bind by Elise Hogue, who's the former head of the National Abortion Rights Action League, NARAL Pro-Choice America, where it really, for me, was a huge aha when I read her book because she did the research to find out, well, where did this anti-abortion movement come from? In fact, and we talk about this in the Dallas and New Mexico episode of the Some of Us podcast, reproductive rights was not a big political issue. Many Christian congregations were like, yeah, Roe v. Wade is great. Opposition to abortion has become so associated with evangelical Christians that it seems like that's the way it was all along. No, in fact, the Southern Baptist Convention, they actually passed resolutions in 1971, 1974, and 1976 after Roe v. Wade, affirming the idea that women should have access to abortion for a variety of reasons. We see these problems all the time. It's a real crisis for our families. We support this. And it wasn't until Republican operatives who were looking for a way to sort of organize white, mostly Southern evangelicals once school segregation failed, that they thought, okay, what's another symbol of all these changes that are going on in the 60s and 70s? It's the changing role of women in the home. and the fact that being able to control her own reproductive system means that more women can delay childbearing, can have careers. And it's just a part of this whole, this social change that a lot of white conservatives were really nervous about. And so this is a moral high ground. We care about the unborn baby. Let's take this on and create a new set of foot soldiers who are churchgoers in order to attach them to the Republican Party. Before Roe v. Wade, Democrats were more likely to be anti-choice because they were more likely to be Catholic. And really, Catholicism was the one organized religion that was very opposed to choice. But the rest of them were like, eh, or they were supportive of Roe v. Wade. And it was really the marrying of the sort of racist, anti-social progress movement with the idea of abortion that, A, gave Republicans a quote-unquote moral majority, gave them foot soldiers, and led us to the path that led to Dobbs. I can literally talk to you forever, and I'd love to take you for coffee next time you're in L.A. Can we just briefly talk about the episode of your podcast, the Manhattan Beach episode? Who are the Bruce family, and what's their story? Oh my God, I love this episode. I love all the episodes equally, but I really love this episode. First of all, because I got to go surfing. I went to Manhattan Beach and I went surfing with this amazing group of mostly Black surfers called Color the Water. And oh God, it was incredible. Even if you're not doing like crazy tricks and being really out there, just 
going into the ocean and feeling like you're a strong enough swimmer to do that is something that actually many Black people don't have because of the history of segregation of swimming. And so just briefly, the Bruces are Willa and Charles Bruce, or this Black family in the early 1900s who bought beachfront property in Manhattan Beach, south of LA, in 1912. And they started a resort there before the city was incorporated. So they were one of the founding families of what's now Manhattan Beach, the super sort of wealthy surfing beachfront town. And they made it a safe haven for Black people to be able to use the beach. And as Manhattan Beach grew, more white people were like, we don't like that there are all these Black people here. And so we are going to petition the city to come up with some excuse to just kick these people off the land. And they did that in the 19-teens. And because of that, there were no more Black people in Manhattan Beach. And today, there are very few Black people in Manhattan Beach. But one of the Black people who moved to Manhattan Beach a handful of years ago discovered the story of the Bruce's family and what happened to them. Her name is Kavon Ward. And she was like, this is just not fair. We just have to give this land back. And the summer of 2020 happened and there was all this like awareness of how often this happened. White people were able to use the power of the state and eminent domain and city law to just come up with a pretense to take away Black land and give them a pittance for it. And the happy part of the story is that in 2021, they won and they were able to give title of the land back to the descendants of the Bruce family. And it's an amazing story of a cross-racial coalition. It's an amazing story of the first known case of land reparations for a Black family in U.S. history. It's an awesome story because when I was talking to the guys on the beach, the guys and gals on the beach, they were saying if the Bruce family had been allowed to just stay surf culture as we know it would be different. It wouldn't be this like uniformly white culture. This site of these Black and Brown and Asian and Indigenous people on the waves wouldn't be a rarity, right? Because Manhattan Beach and Southern California is such a locus of surf culture. And it's like, that would have been amazing for everyone and for everything. It's truly amazing to think about how different it would have been. Yeah. And so that's my point about reparations in general. It's like we can think about it in this zero-sum way. I asked Holly Mitchell why she thinks many white folks are so resistant to the idea of reparations. I think it goes back to this effort to distance oneself from that point in our history. Now, you may not have owned slaves, but you're a direct beneficiary of those who did. And I think that's a difficult thing for people to hear, embrace, accept, and move forward. Despite the resistance in Manhattan Beach to the idea of apologizing to the Bruces, Supervisor Hahn felt that it was the right thing to do. And, you know, when I first met the Bruces, right, that was the first thing I did was, you know, I apologized to them. What did it feel like when you apologized? It felt good because I told you, I'm, in, I'm embarrassed about this. I was embarrassed that how did I grow up and how did I, even as an adult, not know this story? Imagine what more contributions more people who've been unfairly locked out will be able to make to our economy, to our life, to our culture, 
if they have a little bit of more of a shot at the American dream. What do you say to people who refuse to even consider the idea of reparations, whether it's property or money or access to education or other power structures for descendants of enslaved people, for descendants of people who have had their property stolen from them? What do you say to people who are against reparations? First of all, I understand why you're worried, as the people in Manhattan Beach were, that if we sort of acknowledge a wrong, it means that you are guilty of something. I get that, right? Like I get the fear of being associated with some of the most racially atrocious things that society's ever done. Like I get it. I get that it's easier to just say the past is past and you had nothing to do with it. But two, it's not about you. It's not your money. That's not, you know, when the vaccine rollout happens. You don't get people being like, I don't want to pay for somebody else's shot. When they put up a new street sign, it's like, well, we've all paid into the government, including, frankly, generations of Black people who paid taxes for public goods that they were shut out of and excluded from. And so what I say is, this is not you writing a check. This is the government that actually was the one who did these ill, saying it was wrong and making it right. And it's not a zero sum. It's not going to be a threat to your life or your progress for somebody who was wronged and who's still feeling the intergenerational sting of that because we're talking about wealth and property, which grows generation after generation, to be made a little bit whole. It's not going to cost you anything, and it's actually going to benefit our entire economy. Are there any simple actions you wish people would take in their day-to-day lives to help foster solidarity? Oh, that's such a good question. So one thing, for example, in California, a bill did pass to advance reparations. And it feels like so often the people who are the loudest about that are the ones who are adamantly opposed. And like, it'd be nice if you just wrote a letter if you're in California or if you're in another state and just say, hey, I actually support this idea. Let's go forward. Let's be the generation that righted this wrong. So speak out, even if it feels like, well, it's, you know, nobody's like asking for my opinion. Actually, they are. It's the loonies who are always giving their opinion. So whether it's about that or it's about the book bans, right? Like you may be in a school district where you haven't seen a controversy about it. Believe you me that somebody is trying to do a FOIA request to find out every time they mention the word race in the school library. Like it's happening even if it hasn't broken through the news. So teachers, librarians, they need to hear that you support them and their freedom to teach our children. There are so many different ways. Each of the episodes of the podcast is about a different issue in a different place. The first one's about environmental injustice in Memphis. The one that we've talked so much about is about the hidden history of how religious clergy have been helping people get abortions for so long and the underground network that's been revived today in the wake of Roe. Give to an abortion fund, give to environmental justice organizations. And then in your own life, 
there is absolutely an issue that is extremely painful and threatening to a group that's not you, whether it's ICE raids or school budget cuts or the squeeze of affordable housing or the fact that there are neighborhoods that have no shade cover, no pools or struggling with clean water. Like you don't have to go far to know that somebody is hurting about something. And I actually think a lot of people say, what can one person do? You may not be able to make Jackson, Mississippi have clean water, but getting involved in the issue does something to your heart to expand it in that way and say, we are both human and we are in this thing together. It is about the sum of us. And I don't need to ask permission to be supportive, to feel like your fight is my fight. And I think sometimes we get so stuck in our own whatever that we're hesitant to take that step. And it's when I talk to the people who had linked arms across race and stood up for their neighbors and changed and been willing to take risks for what was quote unquote somebody else's fight, they were like the best kind of American. They were like, proud and empowered and happy, but humble and felt like they'd learned so much. And I think we all have the power to be that kind of person. We've been so conditioned to not allow ourselves to feel big things. To find out what it takes for people to overcome their differences and win the fights that unite them. And here's the thing, they are winning. They're winning the right to clean water. I would get in the car, rain, sleet, or snow, knocking on doors, letting them know that they've been sued, and then telling them that we were here to help them fight. Expanding voting rights. And when I got there and I got my ballot and I went into the voting booth, I knew that I was engaging in a sacred hack. And righting historical wrongs. We did this. And the reason I could not be angry was because as a Black woman, I was in a position of authority and power to fix it. That I think that feeling empathy and compassion is scary to a lot of people. I don't think that we've ever really taught, we're not taught how to be empathetic in the way that also protects your own heart. Doesn't mean you don't feel just as much. But I know for me, I'm going to Egypt in a couple of weeks on a UNICEF trip. And it's my first UNICEF trip since Milo was born, my son, he's 11. And I've been trying to work out in my mind, like, how am I going to come back from that trip and not be completely fucked up? And so there are a lot of places in my own being where I feel like the easier thing would to just be like, you know what, I'm going to stay here. I can look up what's going on in Egypt. But I'm trying to learn and I'm in turn, I'm trying to also teach my children how to be able to see it and to feel it and to want to do something about it, but not have it completely destroy my being. And I think artists in general, too, we're never really taught how to feel that. Nobody is. But we feel so much. And I think for people, it's just easier to not have to think about it. What you were saying as far as reparations, how it's just easier to not confront that part of our history. It doesn't make your life any happier to ignore people's pain. 
the thing that as I'm sitting here with what you're saying, which I think is so rich and true, I was like, okay, let me think about some of the people I met along the road. And they did feel fear and overwhelm. And what changed it was taking action. Right. It's like exercise, right? Got to move and you will feel better. Right. It will begin to make the endorphins roll. Right. Show up and then take some action. Part of the real problem is that coming back to social media, the way we experience crisis is in a super disembodied, passive way. Right. It's like I'm doom scrolling and I'm doom scrolling and it's just like waves crashing over me. But then I look up and I'm still sitting in the same chair and I'm still like stirring the same soup, right? That I was doing with one hand, right? So it's like, you're literally not doing anything except absorbing all of this misery as opposed to feeling like you are at least with your body, your resources, your mind, your voice, doing something in the direction of something better. We've talked a lot about hope and what gives you hope, but I want to give you another opportunity to talk about what gives you hope, to give you another opportunity to talk about your amazing podcast. I know how that was probably just so rewarding to be able to tell these stories and hand over your mic to people who are living what you believe will help. If you need a shot of hope, subscribe to the Some of Us podcast. Like truly, I went from being pretty worried about our country to feeling like it's not going to be easy. It's not going to happen tomorrow. But what we need to make a better America is here, right? It's already within our communities. It's people like Desmond Mead, a former homeless veteran who spent a lot of time incarcerated and then helped to ignite in partnership with a disgraced, convicted felon Republican lobbyist who was caught up in the Jack Abramoff scandal. Together, they helped to win what was Amendment 4 on the state ballot in Florida to restore the voting rights to over a million people with felony convictions because they said, have you or anyone you ever loved ever made a mistake? The medal, the courage, the vision, the hard work that took, so inspiring. Or if it's The woman, Kavon Ward, who was like a Black mom on some mom Facebook groups who learned on Facebook about the Bruce's resort that was taken away from them in the early 1900s. And she said, I think I can do something about that. And she did. I just think there's so many reasons for hope. And this podcast, which is produced by the extraordinary team of on-the-ground producers at Futuro Studios, and the executive producers of Higher Ground, which is the Obama's production company. They helped me learn so much about what it takes to tell a good story for the audio format. Like I actually went to all of these places and talked to these people and sat in their living rooms and stood on the picket lines with them. And it's just, I welcome your listeners to take a journey with me to these parts of the country that they probably wouldn't get to and to hear these stories and meet these people that will definitely give them hope about this country. Heather, you give me hope. You're fucking amazing. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast again. Thank you for having me, Alyssa. Keep on, keep it on. 
turn on your TV or scroll through your phone and you'll probably see news that makes you worried about our country, about whether a multiracial America can survive. I'm Heather McGee, and for the past 20 years, it's kind of been my job to worry about our country, to develop solutions to our biggest problems. I led a think tank studying the rising cost of college, jobs that don't pay enough, climate change. But a few years ago, I realized what I was doing wasn't working. It wasn't that we didn't have the solutions. It's that we couldn't come together to fight for them. The lack of equity in this nation hurts all of us. It costs us. Beyond the moral and spiritual harm which stems from hate, there is an economic toll which hurts every single person in the United States. We can't continue to live in a country still crushed by the failures of trickle-down economics when there is no trickle. We can't let the systemic barriers to economic success and access continue to prevent that access to a living wage for so many of us. We can't continue to allow fewer than a thousand families to control more than two-thirds of our nation's wealth. Racial injustice. Economic injustice. It is impossible to separate the two. And so we need to end both of them. And quickly. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry. <laughs>